Amen, church? Amen. So let's get on with it then and look at today's message about the resurrected life. This is our question that would be important for you to consider if you want to get the full weight of today's message. The question is this, what did Jesus Christ do for us? And at first, we would probably all say this is a really easy one. Jesus died for us, right? Jesus died for us. And so when we think about this question, what did Jesus Christ do for us? The first thing that so often comes to mind, both in modern movies and in ancient art, is the brutality of the cross and what he suffered that Friday, some 2,000 years ago, when he was murdered on the world's most uh, vile and atrocious execution system that's ever been known to man. That's what we often go to in our minds. What did he do for us and why? In order to take our sin to win for us forgiveness, uh, to save us from our sin. And so that is true, that that is what Jesus Christ did for us. He died for us. But it is not the only thing Jesus did for us. Jesus did not only die for us, but three days later, by the power of God, he was raised back to life in a new, transformed, and permanent body that is unlike anything that had ever been seen before, but it will be seen many times again in those that he calls his church. And this glorious body that he was given will never perish, it won't break down, it won't be destroyed anymore. The second death has no effect on him. That one death he died, he died once for all. Amen, church. And so when he was raised by the power of God, he gave us a new and living hope, a different kind of hope than we had ever had before because nobody believed that people came back from the dead, except for a small little group of Jewish uh, students and teachers who speculated that maybe at the end of time there would be some kind of resurrection, some kind of restoration of some kind, but nobody in the greater world really believed that people came back from the dead. And so just a few years after all this happened in Jerusalem, the early Christians are talking about it and writing about it. And we're going to start in Romans chapter 1 this morning to discover what all Jesus did for us in his resurrection. And the reason we're starting in Romans, which is a a book, a letter to the church in Rome that Paul, an early Christian, wrote, is this. This message was written about 25 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. You say 25 years, well that's a little while. Yes, uh, you know, one generation or something. But this writing comes about 10 years before the book of Luke that we'll be looking at here in just a few minutes because they were writing letters in the church earlier than they had written down and recorded all of the gospel stories. And so it's very likely that this represents an early version, an original version of what the church believed and taught as they wrote to each other and encouraged each other while they were still telling the stories about Jesus before they were even all written down for the church's use. And in Romans 1, this is what Paul says as he begins this beautiful letter to the church in Rome. He says, this letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, right? I've been bound to him, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. And we say it's never too early to have a little good news. Amen, church? Amen. And so Paul is going to get right to it at the beginning of this letter. That the reason that I'm called to God and the reason that I'm an apostle sent to the nations is to bear this good news, to take good news to people. I've got something worth sharing. God promised this good news 
long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And Paul seems right here to be convinced that the good news he's about to share, all, all of this about Jesus dying and being raised, all of this good news was something you could have discovered in the Old Testament, in the Old Scriptures, in the Hebrew Bible, that you could have read it and you could have seen that something like this was coming. Maybe not clearly, but you could have guessed at it. He says, God promised this long ago through the prophets and the scriptures. And the good news is about his son. In his earthly life, this is Jesus, in his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line. And he was shown to be the son of God, this would be his spiritual life, when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, he is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen, church. Amen. And so what Paul is saying is this. Jesus didn't just come into the world out of a spiritual realm with no connection to history. He came into the world to do something about history, about all of the promises that had been made, about all of the history of the people of God, about real lives like King David, who had his, his family and the generations after David had been waiting to see when God would fulfill a promise that was made to David that someone would sit on his throne forever. And real people in history are waiting for these things to be met and fulfilled. And Jesus steps into that, not only in a spiritual way, but in a very physical way. In the lineage of David and in the power of his sonship as son of God. This, we could put it in these words, this is the first thing on your notes, if you're taking notes with me this morning. This is the first point. This proves something or shows something to us about what Jesus did in his resurrection, and this is what it shows us. Resurrection, specifically of Jesus, completes the story of God's people. Resurrection completes the story of God's people. Now let's expand that a little and think about it. What do we mean when we say it completes the story? Because I surely don't mean to say that when Jesus was raised from the dead, that those stories and promises didn't matter any longer. They certainly mattered. The scriptures say that everything God's promised needs to be fulfilled, and it will be fulfilled. And so those promises couldn't hang out there empty. Something needs to be done about them. And we certainly don't mean that these promises and these stories of God's history have no real bearing on contemporary life. They do. Reading the Old Testament and understanding the story of God's people matters a lot for our daily life now. And so we don't mean to say that it completes these things as if they're put in a box and stored in a closet and don't need to be brought out any further or any longer. What we mean to say by completion is something more along these lines. The way that grandparents and parents and children and, and then great-grandchildren and so on complete the picture of home. That there are generations that we share relationships in and that home wouldn't be quite complete without some experience of that. And so this is why we feel brokenness in life when we don't experience all of that. Because there is something there that is more complete. In other words, more meaningful or fulfilled. We mean complete in the sense that a peanut butter and jelly sandwich just isn't quite the same without the peanut butter. All it is is jelly on bread. And you need peanut butter to complete it, right? To make it stick together. Completion the way that a man and a woman complete each other in marriage, that there is something that can't be met unless it's met through someone who sees your weaknesses and who accepts you for the worst part of yourselves and then decides each day, I'll still choose you and I will love you and I'll help fill in the parts of you that haven't been well met yet. Completion, in a sense, 
That, that means we are fuller and richer because Jesus has done something about the promises that God made because he's brought an answer and a clarity to them. Consider some of these promises that he is completing. There were promises that were made to Adam and Eve and also to the serpent that tricked them into eating that fruit in the garden. God had promised that someday there would come someone from Adam and Eve's lineage and that this snake, maybe in a spiritual sense, would strike at this son, at this person, and wound his heel, but that this son would crush the head of the serpent. That promise was meaningful to the people of God. Someone needs to free us from our compulsion to sin. Somebody needs to come along who will take away Satan's power and sin's power inside of us. What about God's promises to Noah? After the flood, the terrible flood, and God promises Noah, I won't destroy the world in this way again. In fact, the world will experience peace and regular seasons, seed time and harvest and all of this regularity now. There won't be disruption so that life can prosper and continue and the world can be filled with life. And God said, I'm going to do this, but there is still a promise in that. God says, I am undoing the curse I'm undoing the curse, and it would take us maybe a couple of weeks to unpack all the flood story and examine the promise about God undoing the curse, but this promise is meaningful to the people of God. That can't just simply be dismissed. What about the promises to Abraham that you and your offspring are going to be a blessing to the world? God said, I'm going to use you to bless the world. In fact, anyone who blesses you and your people will be blessed. And those who curse you and your offspring will be cursed. I'm going to use you as a light to the world through your offspring. That simply can't be dismissed. It must be fulfilled and completed. There's got to be some realization of this. And the people of God have been watching and recording these promises through generations. They've been watching them like a candle that's flame is burning hot and they're hoping that someday this candle will light a bonfire and, and it'll give light to the world and that everyone will be able to see the life that's in God's promises. And over the years they watch as many of these promises seem to grow more faint and more dim and the candle begins to flicker and they wonder when will the fulfillment of these things come? God promises to Moses, I'll give you a promised land for this people. I'm going to lead you into it just like I had promised to Abraham. And I'm going to give you Torah. I'm going to give you law. And this law will give you life. It's going to teach you how to live better. And it's going to give life to your community. And these are the promises he gave to Moses. He promised to David, even though your kingship will end, I'll put a king in your own lineage on the throne. There's going to be somebody who will rule forever. And he'll be good. He'll be godly he'll be just he'll be kind he'll be benevolent he'll make sure that right is done in the world i'm going to do that for you and it'll last forever and the people are waiting for it and then all of israel who get carried off into exile when they go into assyria and into babylon god says i'll bring out a remnant there's going to be some people that survive even the destruction of the nation and i'll bring them home i'll reestablish them i will give them food and water again and grapes on the vine i'm going to fill their land with good food and with crops, and they are going to thrive there. How can all of these promises simply be ignored in order to receive some kind of spiritual fulfillment? There needs to be something that completes them, that makes them real and tangible and touchable and seeable, and it all happens in the body of Jesus Christ. 
because these people did not receive all that they were waiting for while they lived. The author of Hebrews expands on this. He hits on the same point. This is what he wrote. He said, all of these people, God's people, earned a good reputation because of their faith. They were known as God's people. And yet none of them received all that God had promised. None of them received all that God had promised. For God had something better in mind for us so that they would not reach perfection without us. God is completing something that would never have been fulfilled through the body of Jesus as he brings all of these promises to bear. They all come forward in history at this moment when Jesus' 12 followers and his mother and the women around him follow him to the Last Supper meal and then to the garden and then they're dispersed and some of them come back around at the cross to see him there in agony and they're watching the flickering candle thinking this is the final hope of the people of God. All these things he said, all the miracles he's done. If God can't save him, then what promises will he keep? And they watch as his life is extinguished, as he gives up that final cry and he says, it's finished, and they see the flame wink out, snuffed out, quenched. And they can't believe that the promises have all come to this. The early church's message was not radical because someone died to save a group of people. All of those with the promises before had died. Some of them had died on behalf of others. There was many people in history that had died to save a group of friends or a band of their countrymen. And the early church's message was not radical and crazy and different because someone had died for them. The early church's message was radical because someone was raised from the dead to save a group of people. This was the message that was unheard of, that no one had seen coming, when the candle suddenly relights like one of those silly birthday candles that just won't go out no matter how many times you blow on it or dunk it in a glass of water, that flame will not be quenched. This was the message that turned the world upside down and fulfilled the promises of the people of God. The second thing we mean is this, that the resurrection of Jesus vindicates the ministry of Jesus. Everything that he said and he did was on trial when they put him on trial. Everything that he did in his miracles was called an act of dark powers and of Satan by his accusers, and it was on trial. The early church wrote about this also. Luke, who about 10 years after Paul wrote Romans, was recording his gospel, wrote two stories about the resurrection morning, afternoon, and evening. And these stories capture how Jesus' ministry was on trial and was vindicated in his resurrection. On the road to Emmaus, which was about seven miles away from Jerusalem, two men were walking the day after Jesus' resurrection. And they had heard a little bit about it, but they couldn't believe it. And we see that in the story. This is what happens when Jesus approaches them in his new body that Sunday, 2,000 some years ago. One of them, Cleopas, replied to Jesus, You must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there in the last few days. Can you imagine saying this to Jesus? You must be the only one that hasn't gotten the news, right? There are times in our family when this happens, for Jenna and I when, when this happens. In fact, it's pretty frequent, but there's always different categories. 
because there's always something that we're interested in, right? For, for me, it's probably the actual news, you know, like watching. I'll, I'll watch several different news channels and compare what's going on. I want to know what's going on in the world and think about the state of things. And I'll get into this long, uh, excited and passion talk in the middle of a walk about, I can't believe this political thing that's happening or this international event. And she'll be like, back it up. You know, like, what happened? And I'm going, don't you watch the news? How have you not heard the news? You know, Kim Jong-il did this or, or you know, Donald Trump did this. And she's saying, well, I just, you know, I was busy today with other things. And then there'll be other moments. We'll turn on the radio in the car. And I'm kind of bebopping along to this song, and I'll look at her and I'll say, isn't this a great new song? And she'll say, haven't you heard the news? This is three years old, buddy. (laughs) It happens all the time. Can you imagine, though, saying to Jesus, you haven't heard the news? You don't know what happened to this man named Jesus? They don't recognize him. And Jesus asks them, maybe uh, just to see what they'll say, what things? Jesus asked, what things? And they replied to him, the things that happened to Jesus, a man from Nazareth. They said he was a prophet who did powerful miracles. You see, his ministry was on trial. He was a prophet. He did powerful miracles. And he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and they crucified him. So he was all of these things. And we had hoped Notice, not we hope, but we had hoped. It's over. Hope's been extinguished. We had hoped he was the Messiah who was to come and rescue Israel. We hoped he was going to complete all the promises and that his ministry was real. This all happened three days ago. And then they go on to tell Jesus, we heard some strange stories this morning. His body is missing, but it came from some women, and we don't know if it's true. It's just too crazy to believe. And Jesus replies to them. It says, Jesus took them then through the writings of Moses... You notice he goes all the way back to the Torah that they'd been given. And all the prophets explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus says, you can learn this from the Old Testament, that this was the kind of ministry that I was supposed to have. And then a little while later, after they are amazed, and they run all the way back to Jerusalem, they find the apostles in a locked room, and they're in there with the other apostles. Jesus appears in their midst. And after he eats some food and lets them touch him to see, I am real, I'm tangible, I'm part of history, I'm not just some spiritual thing, he says this to them. Jesus says, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So when I was doing ministry, I told you it was established on the Bible, on the Old Testament. But nobody was seeing it. Nobody was believing it. And now it's come true. I am back. My ministry is vindicated. What I said about the Old Testament is real. My version of interpreting it, what I taught you in the Sermon on the Mount, is authoritative. The rabbis have nothing on this because I'm the one that came back from death. And Paul, again, in Romans 1, a few years before Luke wrote all that down, but about 20 years after Jesus said that, wrote that this had all been written in the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. This is what the early church believed. Jesus was vindicated because he fulfilled the Bible and because his ministry was proved right when he was raised. In verse 4, again, he says, He was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. It was demonstrated that he's the Son of God. This wasn't just a claim in his ministry. It was vindicated. 
He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this brings us to the last thing in your bulletins and our last point this morning. That all of this also proves that you should follow him. This proves that there's no one else quite like him. There's no other religious leader in the world, no other religion in the world in which either one of these two events happens, in which one man takes on all of the weight of sin and all of the penalty of hell on his own body in the crucifixion to save everyone, even people that are against him. But secondly, that he comes back to life. This proves that you should follow him. Look at what, again, what Paul says in these verses. He says that all of these things about the scriptures and in the next verses, the things about the Son of God being raised in power demonstrate he is Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is why we follow him. This is why we worship him. Because he lives still. Because people like Paul and like Luke, who had to actually live in this for the first 25 to 30 years, until someone snuffed their candle out, were witnesses to the fact that we saw and touched him and we believe it so strongly that we would put our own lives at risk and on the line in order to tell this story and share it with you. Luke, living in a world about 30 years after Jesus' resurrection, right about when Rome is ready to descend on Jerusalem and wipe it off the map, that Luke, living in that world, writes this to his friend named Theophilus. He says, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I have also decided to write a careful account for you, most honorable Theophilus, which means, by the way, lover of God. Man who loves God, I've written this account for you so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. And he's writing that in a world in which this can cost his life tomorrow. It's cost his friends' lives already, in which only a few years from now, Paul himself will be killed in Rome because of this message about the resurrection of the Son of God. They lived it out because this proved to them that they should follow him. And it should say the same to us. As we offer an invitation to everyone here this morning, a chance to choose Christ, to believe in him, to put him on in baptism. In just a moment, you can come forward. If you want to be baptized today, we'll do it, and we would be pleased to do it, and you can meet one of our shepherds in the front and be baptized into Christ this morning, in which you'll picture his death and his resurrection, the future hope and promise for you in your baptism. And if you want, you can go to the back and meet with some of our shepherds in private where they will meet with you and pray with you. And you can still be baptized later if you want to be. But I want to share the scripture with you before we give you that invitation. Before you have that moment in which you make a choice for this morning, what will I pray to God today? Because all of you are making a choice. You're walking out of here this morning deciding, how will I look at him? What will I say to him? Based on that evidence, what will I choose about him? I'm going to ask you to stand with me while we read this passage of Scripture from Isaiah, the prophet in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 42, there's a prophecy that no one would have expected would be about the Messiah. No one thought this would be about Jesus. And yet it was. It's one of those completed truths. In Isaiah 42, it reads like this. It says, Behold my servant, look at my servant, Jesus Christ, right, whom I uphold. 
my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Do you remember when God said over Jesus, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And he says the same over you when you're baptized into Christ Jesus. My child in whom I am well pleased. My soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice. Get this. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Jesus looks into you just the way we looked into Jesus, and we see all that hope flickering like a flame, wondering if it's going to be extinguished forever. And God reignites it in his resurrection. And he says, I look at you too, and I see a flickering flame, one that could so easily go out. And in some crazy upside-down way of seeing reality, God knows that when you go underwater where flames can't exist, you come up with the spirit of the living God inside of you. Amen, church. And we offer that to you today. Come as we stand and we sing if we can help you in any